Hi, welcome to a podcast about murder. You're listening to an early episode. Ancient. So old. Thank you for listening. We've learned a lot about podcasting since putting out these first few episodes, so we encourage you to check out our newer episodes too for a smoother listening experience. We're getting better all the time, and thank you for joining us. Welcome to episode 5 of a podcast about murder. I'm Freya and I'm here with Jem again to discuss another true crime case today. How are you Jem? Good. How are you? (laughs) I feel like I don't ask you this question enough. That is true. I'm okay. I'm alright. I'm good actually. I'm good. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Are you ready to talk about murder? Yeah, definitely. Well, let's cut right to the chase. Uh, We haven't covered a killer woman yet on the podcast, so I picked one out, and I think I picked one many people may not have heard of. This is a killer by the name of Joanna Dennehy, in a case which is also known as the Peterborough Ditch Murders. Now, last episode we went all the way back to 1943, and this week we are coming back the other way and doing a case from 2013. So not so long ago, or maybe I'm a bit in denial about how long ago it was. Yeah, I was looking at my calendar and I was like, oh, no, it's not 2020 in a few months. That makes no Uh, sense. I was 18 in 2013. I don't really know how to feel about that. I do remember this uh, actually happening and being on the news. Um, So let's talk about Joanna She was born in August 1982 in St Albans, Hertfordshire. Uh, Hertfordshire is the county that borders Greater London to the north. She grew up in Harpenden, a town near St Albans, which is also in Hertfordshire. Joanna was raised by parents Kevin and Kathleen. Her father Kevin was a security guard and her mother Kathleen managed a shop. Normal nice exactly that's really the the whole point there's not a lot of um of interest here uh, compared to other killers backstories uh they had another daughter named maria who was two years younger than joanna and like we just said joanna's childhood was remarkably unremarkable if you believe her family and friends Uh, Joanna enjoyed playing with dolls, she loved fashion and makeup, her sister called her a bright, happy and bookish child. The sisters were very close as children, they shared a room, they did things like invent secret languages and that type of thing. So there doesn't seem to be any, like, bad relationship with anyone at this point? Joanna has claimed that she was abused as a child. Um, I couldn't find a direct accusation from her against a specific person, Um, but this was strongly denied by friends and family. 
Uh, family friends said that although the parents were fairly strict and they could be quite protective, they weren't abusive to the girls. But then, of course, these things aren't always obvious to yeah. friends and even to family. What goes on behind closed doors is exactly that. It also doesn't have to be abuse from the family or the immediate family. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be an incident from early childhood. It could be later. But... Given what Joanna is going to go on to do, we are going to find that many people are naturally looking for that justification in her past to try and account for her behaviour. Right. Like an inciting incident, I guess. Yeah, and it's natural for us to want to find something like that because it's scary to think that people could just do terrible things without... Yeah, for no reason. Joanna initially did well at school. Her parents paid for extra tuition. She was expected to go to university and possibly even to become a lawyer. She was also sporty. Uh, She played netball and hockey for her school teams. But things started to go wrong for Joanna by her teenage years. She started hanging out with older boys, which is that classic, almost cliche nightmare for parents of a young girl Mm. that they have high hopes for. Joanna started skipping school, and when she was 15, she began seeing a 20-year-old man called John. Mm. I don't think I need to say what I think of that. She briefly ran away with John, causing her parents um, unbelievable levels of stress, I would imagine. Uh, Again, one of the most nightmarish incidents for parents of a teenager. The two were found sleeping rough not far from Joanna's family home, though, and so the parents managed to eventually find and apparently reconciled with her for a time, but this wouldn't last long. At 16, Joanna left home for real. By this time, she was regularly taking drugs and drinking heavily and only came back to her parents to ask for money. God, so it really took a bad turn. It's quite quick as well. Like, as soon as her teenage years roll roll around, she suddenly... Um, acting out so this is why I say is it possible you know it doesn't have to be early childhood abuse you know some situation can happen later you know in your when you're a teenager that could cause you to spiral out of control so we don't know you know what that is Joanna set up home with John at first in Luton (laughs) good old Luton a place we shamefully insulted on our last episode (laughs) and then They moved to Milton Keynes, which is, funnily enough, another British town which is ceaselessly mocked in this country (laughs) and whose name, for some reason, is synonymous with the butt of a joke. Uh, I googled this because I've never been to Milton Keynes to know what's wrong with it, (laughs) but I know this joke, like the Milton Keynes joke. So is there a reason? Well, I read that although, although it's a clean and pleasant place to live, it's lacking in things to do, uh, entertainment, culture, <laughs> sites. So essentially, it's just the the boring small town. I think that's what the joke is. Mm. Um, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> We're going to have a town of the week that we mock. Yeah, <laughs> Joanna had two children in her teens. Uh, Mm. and more or less instantly regretted it, telling friends that she had never really wanted any, ever. (laughs) So that's a good start. After the birth of her first child, she pushed her parents away for good when she apparently told them that if they wanted to see their grandchild, they would need to pay her. Classy. Um, So this is with John. 
Yes, yes, she's okay. still with John. Um, so some pretty shocking behaviour already. And I'm, it seems like this isn't her saying, when you see the child, can you give me money to help with their care because I'm in a difficult situation? Um, no, it seems it like this is her saying, if way. you want a relationship with this child, you're going to need to finance my drug problems and alcoholism. <laughs> so... Meanwhile, the relationship with John was not going particularly well. Surprising. <laughs> for a relationship that started in such odd circumstances. She cheated on him constantly with uh, various men and women, and she would abandon him and the children for periods of days or weeks and return, profusely apologising. The couple tried to get another fresh start by moving to East Anglia. I couldn't find the specific place they were living, but it seems like they were drifting between addresses still. But East Anglia is the sort of jutting out bit on the east side of England, mm. um, if you can imagine that. I'll put a map on the YouTube version for people to see where that is. But the move didn't help. I mean, I think she's clearly developed some issues that just a change of scenery won't really help. Yeah, so, yeah it's a bit more profound than that. Joanne's alcoholism kept getting worse and she was self-harming, uh, specifically cutting herself. She also gave herself a tattoo of a star under her right eye, uh, which you'll see in pictures of her. Despite this ver these various issues, Joanne did manage to work. Uh, she worked as a labourer on farms, though it was said that she would sometimes take alcohol as payment instead of money. So that's not really helping. That's not helping, but it's also like quite bizarre for 2013 mm. like this sounds like something that would happen in the 17th century or something joanna's younger sister maria who didn't have any of these issues um it's worth mentioning was returning from a stint in the army and she tried to track joanna down and reconnect with her as this unfortunate spiral was deepening had they been in touch like throughout this whole thing I think after Joanna left home, she didn't have contact with any of her okay. family so much. But it really does seem like members of Joanna's family do care for her at this point, and they want to try and reach out and help her. That's how it appears anyway. They're not just, like, leaving her to... You know, they are trying to get in touch with her. Still, after all they've been through, mm. which does, I think, sort of prove that they do care about her. But despite the close bond that the sisters had as children, uh, Joanna told Maria she never wanted to see her or any of the family again. Joanna had begun to get more violent. She was definitely an aggressive drunk and she would have meltdowns and physically attack John. At some point she began carrying knives and she started expressing to friends that she felt like killing a person. Well, that escalated quickly. This was too much for John, who left in 2009 and did take the children with him. Uh, this was a good thing for sure. Despite him being a total weirdo for getting involved with an underage teenager as a grown man, uh, I give him a little credit for taking these children because things obviously weren't going to get better anytime soon. Yeah. Joanna was 27 at this point and her bad behaviour certainly didn't improve. She started stealing things to support her growing requirements for drugs and alcohol and she was doing stints in prison. She also engaged in sex work. Uh, but I just want to point out that I don't want to get too heavily into the debates around this topic, but the sex work in and of itself is not necessarily under the heading of bad behaviour. 
because just being a sex worker isn't an indication of poor character. No, it doesn't really say anything about a person's moral character at all. Right, but it certainly is a risk-taking behaviour. Definitely. So it does say something about Joanna's lifestyle when taken as part of a whole. That's, that's why I bring it up. But I also wonder, at this point, the drugs and alcohol have to be taking their toll on her physically. I don't... I can't imagine she has the strength to sort of keep up that manual, physical work. Mm. I mean, she's between jobs. She isn't really doing full... No. You know, she's not at a nine-to-five labouring. She's sort of just here and there jobs. That's what I understand from it. The upside to becoming known to the system through her sort of criminal behaviour was that she did receive some mental health evaluation. Oh, that's good. Um, and some treatment, but clearly this wasn't enough. <laughs> no, and I guess if um, she doesn't want to get better, it's not really going to help. In February 2012, age 29, just over a year before Joanna would make the decision to take someone's life for the first time, she entered Peterborough City Hospital. I think it's Peterborough, <laughs> but <laughs> you could also say Peterborough. But I think that's what someone who doesn't live here would say. I always say bruh instead of borough because that's i think that's english i think it's more english too but she entered peterborough city hospital and was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder it seems that uh joanna's now based in the city of peterborough which is in cambridgeshire the county just west of east anglia if that makes sense so so she's moved a lot by this point. This is like <laughs> getting quite confusing where she is, but I think it's helpful just to get a sense of what's going on. Lucas Slabashevsky. I think I'm getting that fairly close. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> he was a 31-year-old man from Poland living in Peterborough and working in a warehouse. He had a bit of a problem with alcohol as well, and it's said that he met Joanna through this activity, but I couldn't find... Uh, an exact location where they met. Joanna began sending Lucas sexually suggestive text messages in the few days that followed their meeting in March 2013, and she gave him the address of the house in which she rented a room to come and visit her. Uh, This, Lucas assumed, meant was an invitation for a sexual encounter of some kind, so naturally he happily went. Um, And sadly, I also read that he had already told friends about Joanna saying he had met an English girlfriend. Oh, um, that's which is a little bit sad. And sad. <laughs> yeah, but also helpful, I guess, if he goes missing. While he was at the property, Lucas was viciously attacked by Joanna with a pocket knife. Um, she overpowered Lucas and stabbed him through the heart, which I imagine isn't that easy to do with a pocket knife. And yeah, that's that would require some strength. Or strength persistence. and determination and, and persistence, yeah. that, is, that is the key, because she's going to have to stab him more than once, I imagine. She concealed this poor man's body in a wheelie bin. Apparently, she showed the corpse to a local teenage girl by way of bragging. So she's not treating this with discretion from the start. No. John Chapman was Joanna's second victim. He actually lived sort of with her. They were each renting rooms in the same property. John was a 56-year-old Falklands veteran, and if you see photos of this man, he's sort of like a Ron Swanson-looking character with, like, a (laughs) moustache. 
And I remember seeing articles on this case when it happened and thinking that he, in particular, just looks so normal and, like, nice. You know, like, he just looks so innocent because of his face. I, know, I don't know what kind of person he really was, but that's just the impression that his photo gives. He also had issues with drinking, sadly, and drugs, allegedly. And it's said that this contributed to his guard being down when, just 10 days after the killing of Lucas, Joanna again used her knife to brutally stab John to death. After the murder, Joanna called Gary Richards, also known as Gary Stretch. I don't know why he's known that way. <laughs> Intriguing. I couldn't confirm if these two were together together, but um, Gary must have been informed of the first murder because Joanna told him, oops, I've done it again, and sang this sentence to the tune of the well-known Britney Spears track. So it gives you an indication of how seriously she's taking being a mm. murderer, and that is not <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, Gary and his friend Leslie helped Joanna transport the bodies. For this, they obtained a car registered to a false company called Undertakers and Sons. The two bodies were buried outside of the city in a place called Thorny Dyke. Don't even. <laughs> Gary was said to be under the spell of Joanna. Joanna herself bragged to friends later that she and Gary were the modern-day Bonnie and Clyde. So there was obviously, like, a romanticness between them. But what I mean is I don't know if they were, like, calling themselves boyfriend and girlfriend so much as just fucking. Later that same day, Joanna murdered her landlord, the owner of the property she and John rented rooms in. Uh, his name was Kevin Lee. Uh, he was 48. It's funny to me that she decided to lure someone to her place first rather than going for the more convenient victims, such as her landlord or the other tenant. Yeah, I think she really didn't have any plan with these kinds of things. I think mm. it was just literally like, want to do some murder? Who's at home? You know, <laughs> kind of, I don't know. She was just mm. kind of, maybe she started out thinking she was going to be more... Um, sneaky about it and invite someone over and then they couldn't be traced yeah. to her or something and then it turned out that she enjoyed this act so much that she just couldn't handle it and she just started going for people closer kevin was a lover of joanna's although he was married and a father of two of note Kevin had told a friend about his relationship with joanna and remarked that she wanted to quote Dress me up and rape me. Okay, so that obviously implies a certain, I don't know... Type of relationship, yeah. <laughs> I guess. Um, and that he also said she was like Uma Thurman in Kill Bill. But I guess he was into that? But not really, because, you know, from my perspective, Uma Thurman in Kill Bill has a moral compass. Mm. Sort of. Sort of. Uh, obviously incredibly violent, but it's like, revenge driven isn't it whereas but maybe he had insight into joanna's past and something that she said had happened to her that maybe made him think there's a reason that she was reacting to something mm. that had happened to her. a little bit of theory there he was also stabbed in the neck and chest and his body was dumped in a roadside ditch having been dressed by joanna in a black sequined dress and arranged in what was said to be a sexual pose so his comment about dressing him up turned mm. out to be some quite dark foreshadowing. Yeah. He was discovered the following day. 
Four days passed before the bodies of Lucas and John were discovered. It didn't take long of looking into Kevin Lee's personal affairs for Joanna to become a person of interest to police, but the case wasn't connected to the discovery of Lucas and John's bodies until the pieces around Joanna came into mm. place later. On April 2nd, just a few days after the murders of John and Kevin, bizarrely, Joanna got her accomplice Gary to drive her in the Undertaker and Son's car 140 miles to Hereford, which is a heck of a ways away. Yeah, I mean, that's not just a little day trip. It is practically the opposite side of this island. (laughs) She told him, I want my fun. I need you to get my fun. Which is... Okay. Dark. Uh, During the drive, on which they were accompanied by another man, Mark Lloyd, who was later cleared of involvement, Joanna told the men in the car that she was searching for a man with a dog. Two dog walkers in the street named Robin Baretza and John Rogers were randomly targeted that day. Mark Lloyd would later say in court that he was also under the spell of Joanna and so didn't stop the attacks. I should say that I think Mark's lack of being charged in this case probably has something to do with his willingness to testify Uh, later rather than his not being involved because he sounds pretty fucking involved to me. (laughs) There's a lot out there that he said in court if you want to look it up for more insight. Mark said as Joanna attacked the dog walker, she struck like in the film Psycho. Mm. Robin was stabbed twice before realising what was happening to him, as Joanna told him, I'm going to fucking kill you. A passerby intervened, causing the attack to stop, and Joanna got back into the car. Mark commented that Gary drove calmly away, as if the three of them had just stopped for McDonald's. Yeah, I was going to say, it's kind of weird... That these two guys are just like, well, we'll just wait for you in the car then, and then drive off. It's such a strange situation. They stopped by the final victim, John Rogers, who was also set upon in a stabbing attack by Joanna. He asked her, he asked her, what's this all about? Which I find a (laughs) wonderfully British reaction to being stabbed. (laughs) That is an amazing reaction. Joanna, who didn't show any emotion, just said, I had better do some more. Okay. When Joanna returned to the car, Mark said that the blade of her knife was black with blood. um, And that she smelled of, like, blood, which is just a testament to the sort of violence Mm. of this. It's like a weird combination of it being completely random, but very specific. Like, she wants to go to this specific location, find a man with a dog. Yeah, it's just strange. John Rogers and Robin Baretza were badly wounded, but they escaped with their lives after being airlifted to hospital. And they were able to describe their attackers, Mm. their attacker, to police. John and Robin survived. I think the dogs were okay as well, which I know is what everyone is wondering right now. The dogs were fine. I remember back in episode one, I spoke of serial killer Dennis Nelson's dog, um, Bleep, um, a gorgeous dog and a good dog. And I didn't talk about what happened to her after Nelson was arrested because, quite honestly, it was too depressing for me to say that she was put down oh, no. after his trial. She didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> was it not but, like a centre that she could have gone to? I guess 
they felt they couldn't rehome a dog who had been where Bleep had in a serial killer's yeah, house. But Still. there are places to keep dogs forever, you know? There is, like, dogs trust and shit. They keep dogs their whole life. Point is, I just wanted to ensure that it was clear that the dogs of the dog walkers were fine. The nationwide hunt for Joanna amped up. She really seemed to enjoy being notorious, proudly describing herself as a monster, and was said to revel in the feeling of being on the run and the knowledge that the police were hunting for her. So is it now the three of them? Like, they've created this sort of weird bond? Mark, Gary, and Joanna are currently, like, on the run, yeah. Mm. Um... Well, no, actually, I don't think Mark is with them most of the time, but he does say that he had spent time with both of them together, and that was when Joanna cast her spell over her him. Her womanly tricks. Yeah. <laughs> he says, like, oh, she touched me. It was like the touch of a rattlesnake and stuff. I don't know. What the hell does that even absurd, mean? Really. <laughs> it's just silly. <laughs> I mean, there's no... It, it, the way they just try and get the blame off them by like, mm. oh, she was just so enticing. I had to let her kill people. It's just crazy. I guess like, at what point after this, these attacks, you're like driving in this car with these people. At what point can you just be like, well, I'll get off here. Thanks. Could you just drop <laughs> me off? <laughs> it's so, the whole thing is so bizarre. Joanna became excited seeing police speak about her on TV and appeal to the public. Uh, for help finding her. She was really delighted with the state of infamy that she was developing. During the manhunt, she bragged to a witness that she had killed eight victims, including her own father. But he is verifiably not dead, (laughs) and there is no evidence for the other killings she claims. Um, The hunt didn't last long because Joanna and Gary were arrested later the same day. April 2nd. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> so it really didn't last very long. When Joanna was arrested by Hereford police after the attempted murders of the dog walkers, she was said to be extremely calm to the point of coldness. Yeah, which she was during the attacks as well, wasn't she? Yes, yeah. A CCTV clip, which you can look up if you're interested, shows Joanna cheerily and shamelessly laughing and joking with officers in the station after her arrest. She's sort of like, like leaning on the... Uh, counter and like flirting with them and running her hands through her hair and stuff it's just bizarre so really casual about the whole thing she even says like um someone asks her why she's there or something and she goes like oh attempted murder murder could be worse okay so i don't know she's just totally not even on this planet this is one of those cases where there isn't a clear motive beyond desire to kill Really? Yeah. Uh, Joanna was apparently angry at Kevin Lee before his murder for various reasons, but this just didn't come together as, like, a coherent motive. Like, there wasn't a specific thing that he had really done. When her accomplice, Gary Stretch, was asked later why he thought Joanna had committed the crimes, he said, well, she's just that way. You know what I mean. She's off her head. Which is one way to sum it all (laughs) up, I suppose. After her arrest, Joanne was diagnosed by a forensic psychiatrist as having sadomasochistic paraphilia, in addition to her other diagnosis. Um, Sadomasochistic paraphilia is a 
categorization where basically she derived sexual pleasure from both inflicting pain on others and having pain inflicted on herself. Mm-hmm. Basically, all situations which involved pain, humiliation, violence were sexually exciting to her. Speaking to the BBC about this case, a consultant clinical psychologist named Eli Godsey, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, said that his work with hundreds of violent people and with and people with history of self-harm had led him to believe that we are very likely to have here a woman with a history of serious sexual abuse. Um, I definitely don't think that's a crazy conclusion to come to. No. But it's still, there's like, a, there's no, we just don't find any evidence for this ever. Yeah. But I guess it's one of those things where you can't, I mean, it's not, as you said, it's not always obvious that these things have happened or are going on. And we will always come back to a very important problem with that explanation, which is that not all sexual abuse victims become perpetrators by a long way, yeah. by a long shot. Um, most of these people do not become violent offenders, but it can certainly be a factor um, along with other things. Yeah. By itself, it's not enough to sort of explain the whole situation, but I guess in relation to other issues that she had, mm. it sort of paints a picture. Joanna told a psychiatrist that she found the experience of the first murder Moorish and that she simply got a taste for murder. I mean, so she's sort of saying she's been abused, but then she's sort of just saying, but I just like this. So she's just a complicated case because it's all going on behind this sort of facade of like this hard mm. persona. And she's got a history of lying. Like, she lied about killing her father. So, obviously, she's not the most reliable person. Not at all. Joanna's trial was fairly straightforward in the sense that there was no doubt of her responsibility (laughs) for the crimes. In November 2013, she pled guilty to all three murders and the two attempted murders. She received a life sentence and the judge called her a cruel, calculating, selfish and manipulative killer adding that she clearly showed no remorse. He recommended she never be released due to her lack of emotion and the callous nature of the killings. So in this uh, country, you can't give someone, like, you know, like in America, you you can go like 240 years and then you basically, it's like life. In this country, you can't give someone like a life, a life sentence is 25 years. But what you can do is, add on to that a recommendation that that person is never paroled. So when something is severe, we can keep someone, you know, for the rest of their life, but life means 25 years. There could be elements of that that I'm not understanding fully because it's obviously a bit complicated, but that's what I understand of it. Sentences were also handed to Gary Stretch and Leslie Layton for their accomplice work, including preventing lawful burial, perverting recourse of justice, and attempted murder for the Hereford attacks. They received 19 and 14 years, respectively. And another man, Robert Moore, who assisted them in a more, like, minor sense, I believe. Like, he didn't come up in the story at all, but apparently there was some sort of assistance there. He was given three years. There was Mark Lloyd as well, and I just find this so, like, unfair. (laughs) Because he's just, like, actually sitting in the car going, like, oh, wicked. Like, Joanna tells him, I've killed people, I'm going to kill people again, and he does nothing. Yeah. And he's watching this happen. Joanna is one of just 
three women in the UK who have life imprisonment without parole. Um, The other two are, of course, Rose West and Myra Hindley. Since being in prison, Joanna has continued to show a lack of remorse and to brag about having killed more people than she was charged with. Technically, having killed three men in basically 10 or 11 days, Mm. she's she's not actually a serial killer. Oh, really? Um, Because of the time? Yes. So to call Joanna a serial killer is actually erroneous. She is a spree killer because there is no significant cooling off period between the victims, which is what is required to classify someone as a serial killer. So a serial killer is someone who has killed, I think it's two or more victims with a cooling off period in between. For Mm. a spree killer, it's the same thing, two or more victims, but... With no... With no sort of break, proper break. David Wilson, a professor of criminology at Birmingham City University, who studied this case closely, says... Serial killers disengage from the process of killing and revert to their normal life. She, Joanna, seems to have constantly been in the moment of killing. So Mm. she never sort of resumed a normal life. It was like, when's the next one kind of thing. Joanna has got up to various trouble uh, while being in prison, including being found with an escape plot in her diary, which involved the planned killing of a prison guard. Um, This landed her in solitary for two years. Two years? Even for her, to be honest, I, I can't really say that I agree with that level of solitary confinement. That's just going to... No, I mean... Ha- if, can that help? If she had attacked <laughs> a guard and, like, attempted to escape, I could almost understand. But this is just hmm. her writing in a diary. I mean, I, know, I understand that she's a, she's a dangerous individual and that she's done terrible things, but it's like, surely it's just going to make her even more unhinged. Anyway, the High Court denied her claims that her human rights were violated. Um, I actually sort of disagree with that. I think that her human rights were violated. Yeah. No. Some would argue, does she deserve rights because she took someone else's right to life? But I guess that's just personal opinion. I don't think she deserved to be thrown into isolation for just writing about something. The solitary confinement punishment actually technically is complete nothing to do with her um, her crimes. She's already no. been punished for her crimes by being placed in the prison. This is a punishment for having an escape plot, which I understand is a serious thing, but it's like she didn't even do anything really. Uh, I feel really bad defending her. I'm not. Def- I'm not no, saying. Yeah. You know, I don't really want to be on her side in that sense, but it's like. I guess I'm a sort of bleeding heart (laughs) liberal in the sense that I think that in our efforts to either punish or rehabilitate people, we need to not become them. Yeah. I understand that's not everyone's opinion. In 2014, Joanna proposed to a fan that she was corresponding with. Um, She was also writing to several other male admirers. Uh, So it seems like she really had this kind of magnetism to her, which... It's so, like, you know, this spell thing that keeps coming up. Yeah, it's kind um, of bizarre. It's really odd because if you see her, she's not, like, exceptionally attractive. Maybe it's just, like, she's got a magnetic personality. I don't know. <laughs> you have to say that because she doesn't have, like, you know, she's not... No, I mean, there's nothing, like, remarkable about her. 
Yeah, that's what it is. It's not like she's actually repulsive either. I mean, the drinking appears to have taken a heck of a... And probably drugs, taken a heck of a toll on her, like, skin and stuff. But she's neither exceptionally ugly nor is she exceptionally attractive. No. But men are drawn to her and she has this confidence that allows her to manipulate situations, I think. So I, th I think it's all in the way she sort of carries herself. In August of 2018, Joanna Dennehy was found with her throat cut in an attempted suicide pact she had agreed on with her prison girlfriend who had cut her wrists. They both survived and they were separated. Um, once back inside, Joanna tried to kill herself again and failed. She remains behind bars in Bronzefield Prison, Surrey. This year, Joanna's daughter, Cheyenne, spoke to the media for the first time about her mother. Ooh. Cheyenne said that they had exchanged letters and that she had visited Joanna in prison, but also clarified that she believed her mother deserved to be in prison for the rest of her life. How old is she at this point, the daughter? I think she is a teenager by now. Apparently, Joanna was able to apologise to Cheyenne, saying she was sorry she wouldn't get to see her throughout her life. She wasn't able to apologise for the things that she had done um, to these men. Like she, sh she had no remorse for that, but she's able to feel remorseful. I just find that interesting. Cheyenne remembers another side to Joanna as well. Uh, I think before her life really started to spiral. Cheyenne says she was a loving parent before basically becoming more dependent on alcohol and embroiled in aggressive relationships and disappearing for periods of time. It's very sad for the daughter to have had to have gone through this. Um, after her mum's conviction, this poor girl had to move schools, obviously. You know, mm. everyone knew who she was. She suffered depression and nightmares. Her grades suffered. But as of this year, Cheyenne is living in Manchester. She is vowed to be her own person and she has re-entered education in a bid to turn things around. So that's good for her. Yeah, that's great for her. I wanted to end or come to the end with that as a sort of positive note, hoping that, you know, this young woman isn't going to let her mother's behaviour ruin her own life. Mm. She's going to make a success of herself regardless. There is a documentary from ITV about this case presented by Susanna Reid called Joanna Dennehy, Serial Killer. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. I just haven't had the time to watch it, to be honest, so I can't necessarily recommend or comment on it. I have seen an episode of some kind of true crime programme about this. It may have been like Deadly Women or something like that. I recommend seeking out what is aired on TV on this case if you're interested in it because they include video clips of Joanna where you get that insight into this bizarre, like, blasé attitude she has mm. to everything that happens. And there's the clip that I mentioned earlier in the police station after her arrest and where she's, like, joking and flirting and stuff. And it's just quite amazing in, like, a terrible way. She yeah. really just seemed to just not have that thing in her brain that was, like... Something is wrong. You know, yeah, something is wrong with this situation. Interesting case. Nice to have a, a lady killer, as it were. Not, it's not nice. <laughs> <laughs> the other way around. Not nice, but interesting to sort of have a different, a different kind of case. Quite disturbing. But that's it. That's the case of Joanna Dennehy and the Peter Ditch murders. Don't forget to connect with us on social media. <laughs> at 
uh, at about murder on Twitter, Instagram at a podcast about murder, Facebook.com slash a podcast about murder with no E. These are in the description box. I post some interesting bits on those platforms about the cases we do, um, some interesting images and so on. So it, it is worth having a look. Um, just Go for look. a little bit of extra content. If you would like to send us an email as well, give feedback or a suggestion for a case, our address is a podcast about murder at outlook.com. Thank you for listening. Have a nice weekend. We hope you'll join us next Friday. Oh, it's it's the last one as well, isn't it? Next weekend is the last episode of the first season, as we're calling it. So join us for the grand finale. Yes, um, there will be a couple of other things after that, but yeah, then we'll be taking a break. So, definitely don't miss that one, um, and have a great day.